So Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're at tonight. We're in a series in the letter to the Ephesians that we are calling Made and Crafted because the book of Ephesians is about the church. It's about how God is designing with intention a community of people in the world to be the fullness of Christ in a particular place. He is literally making us and crafting us to be the people of God here in San Francisco. And our text today is the straight-up gospel. That's what I want to talk about tonight. If you have been here for a while and maybe spiritually curious and seeking what Christianity is about, there's probably not a more clear text than the Scripture before us of what the gospel is. So let's read it and walk through it together this evening. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll read it and then I'll pray. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. And it doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get clearer than that. So let's pray for illumination that we that we really get this tonight. God, as we pause and pray that you would open up as Paul had prayed earlier in Ephesians, the eyes of our hearts so that we can know you better. And that's what we pray tonight. If we know you from this peripheral sort of way where you're kind of off to the side and and you kind of occupy some of our mind and we're really curious about you, we pray that tonight, tonight you would make yourself known to us. For those of us that are here tonight and we're really pressing and seeking you and need a touch from you, like need that like thing that only you can do that no human can do, only you can do, God, we ask for that. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be illuminated. God, speak tonight. Holy Spirit, please speak. I submit everything to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. We submit all this to you in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Amen. This passage before us is one of the clearest and most expressive descriptions of what salvation is in the New Testament. But one of the things that might strike us right away, especially reading out loud, it out loud, is, are the vivid contrasts in this passage of Scripture. Paul starts by saying that we were, if you are in Christ, this is who you were, but if you're not in Christ, this is who you are, he's saying. And they're vivid in, in, in contrast. He said, you were dead in your sins, We were following the ways of this world and under the lordship of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is Satan. We are enslaved by the cravings of our flesh, and by by nature we are children of of wrath. That's who we were. 
But if we're in Christ, it says we have been made alive in Christ. We are in Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is all done because of God's great love and his mercy and kindness. We're saved by grace. Now everything we are and everything we do is a product of the work of God in us. And we read that, and we think the contrasts are maybe too much. It must be that hyperbole that writers and preachers get themselves into when they make a point. We might write this passage off, even as Christians, by thinking this. Well, we're not that bad, and Christianity can't be that good. We think this is what like, Paul the Apostle does in his writings. We're like, okay, when you read that, dead in my sins, under the rule of Satan, like a child of wrath, well, it's not that bad. I mean, I, I'm not that bad. Like, there's this segment on our local news, um, one of our local news stations called People Behaving Badly, and the guy just captures people behaving badly all around the Bay Area. Just random stuff, like littering and rolling stop signs, and he'll have a job forever because everyone's always behaving badly, right? It's good job security. And so I'm watching that, and half the time I'm like, oh, I've done that. And that would be really horrible if I, like, was caught. Other times I'm like, how dare they do that? Like, I just, and I think there's, even with, with sins and behaving badly, we think we're bad but not that bad. Or if we're bad, we're all bad together. Well, we all do that. And we think when we, well, we look at it framed the way that Paul says, we kind of like, well, we're not that bad. And then when we think of Christianity, we're like, well, Christianity can't be that good. What I would like to show you tonight is the human condition without God is really that bad. And life in Christ is really this good. Now, to begin to make this point, I want to show you Paul's working theology, his big picture theology. So this point here, as we begin, is a bit nerdy and technical and like when I try to explain Paul, a bit sci-fi, okay? So if you're there with me, stick with me, hang in. Hang with me for a second, a couple minutes here, and I promise I'll talk about zombies a little later, okay? <laughs> Paul has um, an eschatological view of both life and death, okay? We'll start there. Paul has an eschatological view of both life and death. So what this means, eschatology, I throw out of your mind like Left Behind book series, if you've ever seen those, I hope you haven't um, watched the movies. <laughs> I'll read the books or whatever, but just throw that away out of your mind. Eschatology has to do with the end of all things, true, but the way that Paul writes about eschatology isn't about like the left behind books. Paul believes that the reality of the end of all things actually shapes our reality today. So, for example, those of you or those in the world that are without Christ or those that are outside of Christ, the end, the, the scriptures say that the end of, of, of that is eternal separation from God. Okay, the end of that. If someone's outside of Christ, the, the Bible says, and Paul's theology is, the person ends with eternal separation from God. They become more and more self-centered. They Self-centered is, is a personal hell that grows inside them that C.S. Lewis said, would say that you advance in this way where you trap yourself into hell forever. Okay? The end of, end of being outside of Christ, Christ is eternal separation from God. It's death. And the penalty of our sins here on earth, which is Paul's understanding of that, is wrath. So Paul says that's the end. And what Paul is saying is that that end result has invaded and permeated the present. Does that make sense? So if the end of being outside of Christ is, is eternal separation from God and death, and wrath, Paul says, well, if you work backwards, the end is actually permeating and invading and breaking into the present because he believes that eschatology has, has bearing on today. The way that things end have a bearing on the present. 
In the same way, Paul says, if you are in Christ, you are right now seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. That there is a future glory you that is seated with Christ in Christ. And that reality of you right now before Christ is complete and holy. And that is invading the present life of you. God is breaking in and pulling you closer and closer toward that reality. And that eschatological reality of what you are in Christ is becoming more real and true about you in the present reality today. So Paul's theology works both ways. If you are in Christ, that, theo- that reality of being in Christ, seated in the heavenly realms, is breaking into the present. But if you are not in Christ, you will be one day eternally separated from God, and that is breaking into the present as well. So Paul has a realized eschatological conception of death and a realized eschatological conception of life in Christ. This is where reading a lot of sci-fi really helps getting your mind around Paul's theology. Because Paul says that the future reality plays out in your life right now. So what Paul is saying is that death works backwards. The way that Paul says it is in verse 1, you are or you were, depending if you're inside of Christ or outside of Christ, you are or you were dead in sin. Now this is partly a metaphor, right? Because you're not really dead. The, this metaphorical use of death first appeared in the biblical story in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, the Lord was with Adam and Eve and told Adam in the garden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely or you will certainly what? die. You will die. Yes. In chapter 3, man does not, does actually eat the fruit, but Adam and Eve don't instantly die physically. They don't die. They eat it and they don't die. Rather, what happens to them is that Adam and Eve begin to live apart from God in a death-saturated existence. So from Genesis 4 onwards, there's blood and death and toil. Death begins to fill the pages from Genesis 4 onward, Because the end result is death, and death is working its way backward. Death, that is the future, is working its way backward to where it's invading their lives in the present. In other words, the end result has invaded and permeated the present. Death controls life. Are you with me? Do Do you see what Paul is saying here? As a consequence of sin, people have no relation to God and a distorted relation with each other. And we are powerless to change that reality. And we are being pulled down to destruction. This is the biblical diagnosis of people who are outside of God. This, Paul says, is the human condition. Paul calls this bondage. Or maybe a more recent psychological term might be more helpful here, addiction. This is addiction to self. We are addicted. We are all infected. You know, I like to quote song lyrics to you often, and some of my favorite quotable lyrics that I restrain from most of the time are 90s grunge rock lyrics. (laughs) But I'm just, I don't care. I'm going for it tonight. Do you guys know who the Red Hot Chili Peppers are? Not like the Red Hot Chili Peppers from like, like Carpool Karaoke, but like the 90s Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? They have a song called Soul to Squeeze. It's such a great song. And this is how the song starts. And this came in my head, I'm thinking about this. Um, And he's writing about addiction. 
He says, um, this is how the song starts. I've got, I got a bad disease. Up from my brain is where I bleed. Insanity, it seems. Now, you're like, well, you guys are pretty messed up in the 90s. We were very messed up in the 90s. Um, but he's talking about addiction. Like this bad disease that's coming out from his brain, and he feels like he's going insane. This is what it feels like. This is addiction. This is, Paul says, a bondage to self, to sin, to the evil one, to the world. Paul goes for it all here. Did you, you notice how he, he says you're enslaved to everything? I mean, he paints a pretty bleak picture. He says you're enslaved to the world, you're enslaved to the devil, and you're enslaved to the flesh. He uses the word follow. Like you follow the, 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 you're under the rule or you follow the, the prince of the kingdom of the air, the prince of the power of the air, this is the devil. You follow your flesh. You follow the world. You follow. Now, that word is weaker in English than it is in the original language that Paul wrote it. That word follow actually means you're mastered or you're controlled. So when he says you followed the devil or you follow your flesh, what he really means to say is you are mastered by the devil or you are controlled by your flesh. Paul says that the human condition is that we are controlled by the fallen world, that we are controlled by the devil. We are controlled by our flesh. We are controlled by self-centeredness. Now, I know that when I start talking about the devil, there are maybe some of you in here um, when I talk about the devil and the evil world, some of you might start rolling your eyes a bit and checking out. You're like, oh my gosh, this guy, you're not talking about the devil for real, like the real devil? Like, there's no way that you're going to expect me, um, someone who has the education I have, or to, to, to believe in a devil. If you're not going to listen to me um, as being someone of the faith talking about faith, then listen to a self-proclaimed secular liberal, uh, Andrew Del Banco, who who is a professor at Columbia University, who wrote a book a few years ago called The Death of Satan. And in this book, he makes the case that secular people have no vocabulary to deal with evil. And because of that, it's hard for modern secular people to cope with evil because, in his language, we've killed Satan. He says, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms like dysfunction and pathology. And we used to say things like racism and violence came from a lack of education, but then World War II happened, and the Holocaust grew out of the most educated society of the time. And even today, with everything that we know, it seems racism and violence are more of a problem than ever, and we watch the world, or maybe you've watched the news the last three years, and you've watched it, and you, and you, you maybe say this out loud, said, like, what is going on? What is wrong with people? What is wrong with the world? DeBunko would say that when America became more secular, it went from a place where Satan was a live and active figure where you could talk about him, like that's evil, that's satanic, to an age of skepticism where the devil was being reduced to something that educated people could not even believe in. Therefore, educated secular people ha don't have a category for evil. You don't know what to do about it. You don't know how to deal with it. The subtitle of his book is How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. But the Bible is not afraid to talk about the devil and his influence, his hatred for everything good and everything from God. The Bible is not afraid to talk about how broken our world is and how our world, world is, is ran on competition and war and money and pleasure. But we all want something better, how we all want something better, but we don't know how to get there or how to fix it. The Bible is not afraid to say that the root of all of this is our own self-centeredness and the devil and the world order play into our self-centeredness. 
Paul calls it the flesh in verse 3. That we are masters or slaves or controlled by the flesh. This refers to what to that which leaves God out of the picture, the flesh. This is a life that's curved in on itself. This is sin. Self-centered heart no one can escape from. You can't escape from your old self-centered heart. We're all guilty of this. Self-centeredness seeks to use all things, even God, for our own sake, Martin Luther said. Self-centeredness is using, seeks to use all things, even God, for our own sake. Self-centeredness, or the flesh, as Paul's talking about here, clings to everything. It makes everything about you. It makes serving the poor about you. It makes relationships about you. It makes the noble work of parenting really about you. It makes your job about you and your religion about you. Self-centered it makes getting into Christianity so that God can serve you. And it, it makes us think with every single decision, What's in this for me? How would this make me happy? It's a life that's turned in on itself, and it it drives everything, and it's powerfully addicting. This is powerfully addicting because it feeds the ego. And now we're back to the addiction language. Sin is addiction. Sin is addiction to to self. And one of the symptoms of addiction is self-deception. None of us really think we're that self-centered. So even when I went through that list, you're like, I can see how other people could be that self-centered. I've seen other people make the job about them. I've seen other people make their parenting about them. Oh, I've seen other people make religion about them. But I'm not that self-centered because I know me. One of the key key symptoms of being self-centered is being self-deceived. Example, how many of you think that you are a good driver? Think about it. And when you drive, you probably think the city is filled with bad drivers. I'm here to tell you, you are self-deceived. Which brings me to zombies. See, th- this, this zombie phenomenon that is, that's not, it's not that new. That has been around for the last, like, six, this huge zombie phenomenon in the last, like, six, seven years. It's not new. Paul is literally writing about zombies in Ephesians 2.1. Hang with me for a second. If you're like, oh my gosh, Satan, now zombies. What is happening? He says this, before Christ, you were dead in your sins, right? He says this. Now, your physical body was alive, but you were dead. What he's saying here is that you were the living dead. You were alive, but dead. You were walking around. You had a body, you were alive. There was a, an article in the Huffington Post a couple years ago about the popularity of the show The Walking Dead on AMC. How this show is crazy, crazy popular. Up there with the top show, like top like Modern Family, like all these f- funny like shows you can relate to, but there's a show about eating other people. Yeah. They're like, is that as, as popular? Like, why is this thing so popular? And it, it's well acted and well written, but he says there's something deeper here. And actually a lot of critics have written on why is this show so popular. He says, because the show has to do with our humanity. And he writes this. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to quote it to you. He says, not to, wade, not to wade too deep or far out into the philosophical pool here, but if you think about it, The Walking Dead poses questions about the human race itself. It reanimates the fears we thought we buried long ago. Ah, but perhaps this is the key ingredient in The Walking Dead's secret sauce. 
After all, what could be more frightening than to discover mankind's worst nightmare turns out not to be aliens or giant insects, but our own flesh and blood, our neighbors, moms, dads, sons, and daughters, our own flesh. The grave truth is that the monster is indeed us, but it goes deeper than that. We eventually discover in the show that we're all born with the potential for this deadly reanimating virus. The sub-theme of the, the Walking Dead is that evil lies embedded within our DNA or within some immaterial part of us. This is a theory that blatantly challenges the feel-good sentimental notion that one day humankind will exist in a utopian, danger-free society. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, humanity has yet to produce a solution or even a sufficient explanation as to why we have such capacity for badness. What are you saying? is that so many people love this show, and we love the zombie genre because we can relate to zombies. That's what he's saying. Because you see zombies, you're like, oh, I get him. I get her. We, we relate to people who are infected, but sti still keep trudging in search of something that will never satisfy us. Driven, insatiable, unhappy, helpless, and barely conscious. It's all about us. Maybe The Walking Dead actually deserves the TV show title, This Is Us, not walking dead. <laughs> now, I, I must admit that I'm not a big, I'm not huge in the zombie genre, like maybe some of you might be, um, but I've seen a few things, read a few things. Um, I think my favorite zombie movie is not really a zombie movie, it's a romantic comedy. It's called Warm Bodies. It came out like four years ago. Have you seen this movie? Oh my gosh, this movie's great. It's not even a zombie movie, really, it is, so beware, it's a zombie movie, but it's, it's a love story. It's actually Romeo and Juliet, but that's a whole different thing. Anyway, that's not my point. My point's this. The, the, the movie is about zombies, and a particular zombie named R. He doesn't remember his name, but he's pretty sure it starts with the letter R, so he calls himself R. And the story is about how R comes to life because of love. He's a zombie, the living dead, but his heart is literally resurrected because of love. There's a scene of his heart coming back to life because of love. And the point is, love brought him back to life. Now, cute, maybe silly to you, but this is, the, that's, this is the clearest picture I can give you about what will cure us, the living dead. And it's not just any love, not a romantic love. It is the powerful love of God. Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Do you see that? What, I mean, this was such a great line, but because of his great love. See, what Paul is painting here, he's painting this bleak picture. We were dead and under the control of the fallen world and the devil and our own self-centered hearts, but God. But God intervened, but God will not stay out of the picture because of his great love. While we were dead in our sins, when we cannot find or create a cure for our own deadness, God, because of his great love for us, rescued us and saved us with a powerful love, a love that can raise the dead, a love that can raise the dead, a love that can take a, a dead heart that is dead to the things of God that is dead to, to really knowing who we are and what the world is really, really about and make us alive. And this is the central text about what being saved means. So if you're going to the Bible to go, what does it mean to be, quote, saved? It's right here. 
Salvation is a transfer from the domain of the world and the devil and our own powerful flesh to be under the rule and the authority of God who breaks the power of the world, the power of Satan, the power of death, and the power of our own flesh. And therefore, the, the world and the devil and the, and the addiction of self no longer has mastery over us. This is why we call Jesus Lord, which is king, which is master. So when you follow Jesus, it assumes that he is now your Lord. Your flesh is not your Lord. And so when you make a decision, you're like, flesh, what do you want to do? No, 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 that's not how I make decisions anymore. Jesus, what do you want to do? This is what it means to be under the lordship of Christ. This is what it means to be saved. Now, how did this happen? How does this happen in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds? Ephesians says in in verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved. We've been saved by grace, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So you did nothing to earn this. You did nothing. This is not because of your family of origin. This is not because of your moral record or because of your career or education or achievements or religiosity or your beauty or your intuition or your instincts or decisions. It wasn't because of any of that. You are saved by grace. But the thing is that we all look to those things our moral record, our career, our education, our achievements, our decisions, we all look to these things to find ourselves, to find our worth. All of us do. We go, I have worth because of how I serve the poor or how I recycle or how I don't litter or how, how beautiful I am or because of the decisions I make for my kids or the decisions I make about, about who I'm going to marry or date or whatever because of my salary. I have worth because of these things, these achievements. And here's how you can tell. I can say, say that to you, but maybe that doesn't resonate. Here's how you can tell. If you're looking to those things to prove that you have worth, this is how you can tell. You're exhausted. You're completely exhausted. You're exhausted from trying to maintain that worth because you got it. You've achieved what you wanted to do. You got into the career path that you wanted to get into. You married the person you wanted, whatever it is, and now you're trying to maintain it, and it's exhausting. You're trying to maintain, well, if I, if I got here, I have to maintain this. Or you're exhausted from trying to gain worth in that area still. I haven't accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And you're going after it, and you're trying to gain it, and it's, it's, dry, it's, it's, it's exhausting. It's utterly exhausting. But what if I told you that salvation is rest? I mean, it, it, what salvation is, what faith is, is rest that your soul is really looking for. It says here that we are saved by grace through faith. And faith is trusting. Faith isn't just saying, I believe something. It's placing your trust in it, and not just your trust, but then resting in it. Faith is resting. It's resting in Jesus for salvation that he brings by his grace and his works, not by our merit and our works. It's resting in what he's done, not what we do. Faith is resting in Jesus for our worth. It's the end of striving. So to say that I'm a person of faith, when you say, I'm a person of faith. It actually says more about God than it does about you. It says less about you and says way more about God because what you're saying, when you're saying, I'm a person of faith, you're saying, I'm resting all of my hope into a trustworthy God. I'm a person of faith. That means it doesn't come from me. I'm not striving to be the kind of person God will love. I'm not striving to be my, uh, my own savior. My salvation, my personal salvation project has ended. I don't have the power to save myself. I rest in Christ. 
I'm a person of faith. What that says is that I just, I trust a really trustworthy God. So faith is also attachment. It's not simply a decision to believe a certain set of truths. Faith is an attachment to Jesus and His life because only in His life will I have life. So it's like I'm clinging to you with everything I have because in you, you're the only one that has life. You're the only thing that has life. And when the salvation of Christ truly gets a hold of you, you start to see everything as a gift. This is how when you know when Christianity and the gospel of Christ truly gets a hold of your life, you start to see everything as a gift because you know that you are simply a sinner saved by grace. You didn't deserve any of it. So you see everything as a gift. Every trial that you're in is a gift. Every achievement, a gift. And why? Because you were once dead in your sins. You are a sinner saved by grace. And this is not from you. It's a gift of God. It's all a gift of God. If you knew you were a sinner saved by grace, you can truly serve people. I mean really truly serve people because when you serve them, you realize that you're no better than them. You're not serving to make yourself feel anything. Like all of my hope and my security and my worth is in Christ and I was a sinner saved by grace and I can serve you and I can, I can be called a slave. See, we can serve people, but when we're called a servant, it feels a little different. Can you, like, just think about that. When, when you go out to serve people, it's one thing. Like, I'm, I'm serving you. But when you're considered a servant, when someone calls you a servant, I want you to serve me. We go, whoa, 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 no. I do this on the way I do this. I serve the way I'm supposed to serve. But when, you have, when, when, when grace so captures your heart, you're like, you can, you can call me a servant. I can be the lowest person in this room, and that's, I don't really care. I don't care. I don't care if you see me as a servant. I don't care if you confuse me as a servant. I don't care. I'm not trying to say I'm a servant so I look better than you because serving, people that serve just, have, just, just look like they're, they're, they're well regarded. That's not why you're doing it. When, when, you, when grace has truly gripped your heart, you can forgive people because you know that you're capable of all the same wrongdoings. It's when you think that you're not capable of it that our heart gets bitter. We're like, I would never do that. I would never do that. Then your heart, what happens with your heart is like, I'm way better than that. When you're a sinner saved by grace, you're like, I, I'm probably capable of that. But thanks be to God. When you're a sinner saved by grace and you realize that, you could take the good with the bad because you know the good will only really get better in the end and the bad, well, it's prob- probably better than you deserve. And so you can take the good with the bad. Let's, let, so I, I want to end where we started with eschatology because what Paul does in verse 10 is he says, this is who you are in Christ. You are God's handiwork. And what he's saying there, he's reaching to the end. He's saying God knows the work he's doing in your life. He knows the finished work that you will become. And what he's doing, he's working towards that right now. You are his work he is working in you to do this. And so, what the future glory that we have in Christ and who we are in Christ and our, the fullness of who we are, complete humans, that is invading our lives today. And God is working this out. He's working this out with every trial that you have, with every heartbreak you have, with every 
success you have. Success, we, 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 it takes us, it's harder to learn from successes than failures, though. But God uses all of them, all of them, to make us more into the person that, he, that we are already in Him. He is work, and, and the way that we show this, and this is, this is how he, he ends here, this section, the way that we show this is that we actually walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. And what this means is that we work out what God is working in us, that we walk in good works of God. And what this looks like is works done in faith. And so I said earlier, when we make decisions, when we do things, we do things not out of what is what's in it for me, what is best for me, what do I want, but God, what do you want? Lord, you are the Lord of my life. What is it that you would want me to do? What is it, how is it that you would want me to respond? What is it that you want me to learn? All of my life lived in reference to Christ. This is the, this is the, this is the hope of the, the, the new person in Christ. And all our works, everything we do, is motivated by, by a love of Christ. And not for God's approval. We don't serve, we do not serve in a place to earn God's approval, but from God's approval. We already have it. And so as we end, <clears throat> I, want to, I want to just maybe spend some time meditating on grace. Like grace. And as, as we do, I just want to share with you um, the grace of God looks like this. When Paul talks about the grace of God, he has in his mind the way he was saved. And he was saved because he was on his way to capture and kill Christians. And Jesus met him on a road and said, why are you persecuting me? And then God delivered him and saved him. And so when Paul says grace, what he means is that I didn't deserve this. I was actually on my way to hurt Jesus. And he saved me. And I did nothing for this. He went after me. So that's what grace looks like. When I, me, myself, when I was, when I was saved, I, went, I started going to church because I met a girl named Ashley who went to church. And I'm like, I think I want to go to church now. <clears throat> and then the night that I went to Bible study, uh, I went because my friend said, let's go get high before we go to Bible study. It's a good excuse to get out of, out of the house. I'm like, my mom will totally let me out of the house for Bible study. She doesn't necessarily let me out of the house to go get high, so I'm going to do this. <laughs> my point is that I was not on my way to go meet Jesus. Grace comes and finds us. Grace goes after us. So you might have stumbled into this church tonight. You might have just like, well, uh, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll go with you to church, so you stop bugging me to go to church. Like, grace comes and finds us. And God goes after us. And those of us that we might even call ourselves saved in here, grace still comes after us like that and surprises us. It's like, God, I wasn't expecting this tonight. I wasn't expecting you to come and meet me. I wasn't expecting you to come and save me and deliver me from really, really horrible decisions that I'm about to make or the way that I'm thinking. But this is what grace does. And so when Paul says we're saved by grace, that's what he's talking about. You did nothing. You were actually, you, you were actually an enemy of God, but he went after you to save you. Let's pray. I'd like to close... As we close in prayer, just I want to close with a moment of silence. Just take a moment to be silent, to practice silence, and reflect on how the Lord might want us to respond to this tonight.
come, Lord. I uh, pray, God, that you would give us the, the courage now to respond to you in the way that we might be sensing in our spirits and our minds what you're, what you're saying to us, that we would respond to that. I know there's so many different ways that you're speaking to people tonight, and I pray that you would save people, that people would, that we would come to know the power of grace that you've come and met us, God. Save, Lord. I pray that, um, just reminded of this passage of Scripture in Acts, where it says to repent and turn to Jesus so that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing through repentance. I pray that would happen tonight. That as we turn to you, as we look to Jesus to be saved, and it might be the millionth time we're turning to you to be saved, that times of refreshing would come from the presence of God even now. Refresh us, God, with your salvation power. Bring dead things to life, God. Speak to us by your love. Speak to us and make our hearts beat again, burn again for you. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.